0: Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. I'm Melissa Harris Perry, and you're listening to The Takeaway. Today, we mark one year since a racist massacre in a grocery store in Buffalo, New York and we're revisiting our coverage of that shooting from last year. Let's listen. Ask yourself why it happened. Ask yourself what kind of nation are we that this is allowed. Ask yourself why are guns on the street that can take too many, so many people's lives in two minutes and three seconds, 10 people killed, three of them injured. Ask ourselves why our politicians refuse to believe in white supremacy. On Monday, residents of Buffalo, New York, filled a local courtroom. Many of them were the family and loved ones of the 10 people who were murdered seven months ago on May 14th at the Topps Friendly Markets Grocery Store. Their names, Roberta Drury, Margus Morrison, Andre McNeil, Aaron Salter, Celestine Cheney, Hayward Patterson, Catherine Massey, Pearl Young, Ruth Whitfield, Geraldine Talley. All of them were black. The shooter who took their lives was enacting a white power fantasy of racial terror, and he live-streamed online. The shooter faced 25 charges in New York State, including three counts of attempted murder for those who were wounded but survived, and 10 counts of first-degree murder. Each murder charge carries a sentence of life without parole and he pled guilty to all of them. The shooter was also charged with one count of domestic terrorism motivated by hate, a state charge that went into effect in 2020. And this is the first time it's been used. I'm joined now by Mark Talley, Executive Director of Agents for Advocacy, a nonprofit serving the Buffalo community. He founded it in memory of his mother, Geraldine Talley, who was murdered in the shooting. Mark, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Melissa. Glad to be on here talking to you.
0: You just had your first Thanksgiving holiday without your mother. Can you tell us how you and your family are doing?
1: Uh, I'm doing. Uh, I'm doing great. I mean, holidays that I uh, really wasn't a holiday person at that. I was very uh, introverted at that. My mother knew what type of what type of son she had. Uh, she knew I really wasn't high when it comes to family get-togethers, big type of holiday events, things, things of that nature. So for me, I mean, it was a relatively, you know, pretty, somewhat pretty normal normal Thanksgiving. And trust me, after all, of the, all the things I was doing on Thanksgiving, delivering close to, close to if not over 700 meals to people, it was another day as usual for me.
0: I know that your mother, from your from your early childhood on, um, had raised you as a, as a single mom and had high standards for you. Do you think she'd be proud that you spent your Thanksgiving in service in that way?
1: Absolutely. I mean, she would have probably criticized, you know, me wearing sweatpants and no jacket in the <laughs> cold weather. But no, I think she would definitely be happy with everything I did.
0: Did you at least have a hat on, Mark?
1: No hat needed. <laughs> I got long care. It can cover my ears.
0: <laughs> Tell me about the courtroom on Monday.
1: There was a lot of a lot of people showed emotions there. The judge constantly kept um I'm assuming the judge had to be thorough, so she kept reading the counts of everybody who died, what order in which they were killed and where they were shot at. So most of the families at that time, they didn't they didn't know when and how their family member died that day. They just know their family member did. So once the judge started um, reading off the accounts, it definitely got emotional for the majority of people, people in the courtroom.
0: The man who took your mother's life, as well as all the other victims, did he face you? Did he... Express regret of any
1: kind. Um, didn't face us. No regret. Uh, they had, they had them surrounded by police. We were told that they did this because you know they were afraid that you now maybe somebody from the our side, basically where um, all the people in attendance was sitting at, may try to jump over the rail and uh maybe attack them. And they had them looking very, very clean cut an innocent in appearance, but uh yeah, the gentleman never once looked at us showed any any emotion or remorse.
0: Does it feel like justice for you?
1: Well that, that's in the eye to behold it right there. It depends what you think is justice. To me, him going to jail, prison, and being sentenced, that's not justice for me. What may happen to him while he's in jail or prison that'll feel more like justice for me.
0: This is a white supremacist. He has said so. He was motivated by racial hate. Yours is not the first Black family, nor likely the last, to be um, affected by a racist murder. How does that hate affect how you understand what would constitute justice in this case?
1: I mean, it really doesn't doesn't affect it at all. I mean, America was um not necessarily founded, but America began its infant history, what around sixteen nineteen. Uh and since then America has constantly showed a tendency and hatred of racism, having strong ties of xenophobia. So, I mean you can you can just Google right now your phone races attack and you'll get hundreds of stories. It just so happens that uh Ours made the made the worldwide news that day. Unfortunately, but it's so many racist attacks that happen on a daily occurrence that doesn't get that attention and notoriety. So this just feels like another another day being a minority in America. Because you know we can shout and scream, but until real change gets done in America, decides to recognize its past, present, and racial tendencies going forward in the future. We will constantly have uh, black people, minority, screaming about racism, but unless this gets done, you no, know, it'll just be a waste, waste of breath and us screaming.
0: Mark Talley, thank you so much for taking the time for speaking with us and thank you for your work. Mark is executive director of Agents for Advocacy and is serving in the Buffalo community. Mark, thanks again for joining us on The Takeaway.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, too.
2: This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen
0: wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. It's been a year since a racist gunman killed 10 people and wounded three others in a mass shooting at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York. Less than two weeks after the mass shooting in Buffalo, we witnessed the horror of a massacre at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, where the slaughter of 21 children and teachers left a close-knit, predominantly Latino community in mourning. As all Americans, and especially Black and Latino communities, grieved these losses, we hosted a conversation here at The Takeaway about mental health in times of crisis and the barriers to care for communities of color. Let's take a listen. Joining me now is Luis Zayas, who is Dean of the School of Social Work and a Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Texas at Austin. Dean Zayas, I appreciate you joining us.
2: Thanks for inviting me, Melissa.
0: So in Buffalo, there was a racial motivation to the crime. does not seem to be the case in Uvalde, but this is a predominantly Latino community. Does that identity... Matter do do Latino identities matter when it comes to the question of of grief and loss in this
2: moment, Melissa? It matters to the families who have and the community that's been deeply affected, primarily because how we grieve, how we mourn, is influenced by our culture and our background. And in Uvalde, unfortunately, we had this awful tragedy. It wasn't seemingly a question of race, but rather just a troubled young man, and so the community will have its own way of mourning and grieving the loss of these children. Regardless of our, you know, race, ethnicity, religion, this is, as President Biden said, you know, ripping a part of our soul uh, out of us. So the parents and the community are, community are really suffering. Each and every one of those families will be mourning in their own way, informed by their culture because we cannot think of Latinos as monolithic in the community of Uvalde, which involves primarily Mexican and Mexican-Americans, we would expect to see other other folks from Central America, for example, who might have integrated into the community whose children were perhaps in that school. And oftentimes those folks may be undocumented. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be hard for them to grieve the way the other families grieve.
0: Why would undocumented status be associated with the capacity for for public grieving of of your child?
2: Undocumented people have to live in the shadows constantly, even with uh, U.S. born children or children who are also undocumented. They send their kids to school, but they do not have access to the benefits of much of our society. Things like insurance and the protection of the law. So to go to a federally qualified health center for example or another clinic or hospital to get mental health services means that it exposes them consequently their grieving will be different than the families who have been in uvalde say for generations who work for the the town for the local merchants uh have their own businesses who are insured or perhaps receive uh, medicaid and other benefits. The undocumented won't, and their grieving may be done much more privately. So in Uvalde, we will probably see families who can come together and mourn in a public space with the television cameras and and reporters all around them, where many of the undocumented will have to grieve quietly at home, perhaps without grief counselors and other services. That's not to say that there won't be local social service agencies, nonprofit organizations that will step up and offer services, but it still means that the fear remains. And to some families, it may not matter. They've lost a child, so to lose their chance of pursuing the American dream here may all have gone down with that child and are willing to take the risk of deportation, hmm. but it is going to be very difficult for those families.
0: So I so appreciate the way you walked us through some of the reasons that uh, an individual or a family might be reluctant to seek mental health care grief counseling at this time. But what constitutes culturally competent grief counseling or mental health services at a time like this?
2: What we mean by that, Melissa, is that the individuals, the grief counselors, must have some working knowledge at the very least of how a particular community mourns. And mourning grief, mourning loss is very imbued with culture all around it. Uh, How one culture mourns or grieves the loss of a loved one may differ from others. So in a community such as Uvalde, we may have the the different uh, forms. And it it may be different, for example, for an undocumented family that of indigenous background from say the highlands of Guatemala who may grieve differently based on their religion or their beliefs, then we might do in a Western world. So for a grief counselor, it that individual needs to at least have a working knowledge of that culture, even if it means learning it at the moment from the very family that they're working with. So the approach of culturally competent mental health care really begins with a certain level of humility, that I don't know your culture. Uh, I'm learning your culture, but I'm here to help you. And that's vital so that the the trust can be earned by that family, knowing that someone deeply cares, may not really understand us, but is here with with full empathy for us. At the beginning of the show, you mentioned uh, the workforce is largely... A non-Hispanic, non-minority workforce in the mental health workforce—that is—and indeed, that is the case. But I'm also of the mind that it doesn't require someone of the same culture to serve us. Yes, it's important to to be uh, knowledgeable, sensitive to the culture, and work very hard at it. And we are—we face what we face, which is a largely non-Hispanic, non-minority uh, workforce mental health workforce, but it's incumbent on them to learn uh, how to work with these families. And that's where this culturally competent service comes in. We do trainings um, and it's part of every uh, licensing exam. But when it comes down to the day-to-day practice, we don't know who we're gonna face on any given day. Uh, that is culturally, uh, just like the, the grief counselors uh, in Atlanta did may not have known exactly what the asian community uh would need but they had to learn it so too do we have to think about uh about that uh and it doesn't stop counselors from uh providing good services they must understand and and enter it with cultural humility with a certain naivete and a respectfulness for the different ways that people mourn
0: louise zayas is dean of the school of social work at the university of texas at austin Dean Zayas, thank you so much for joining us.
2: You're very welcome, Melissa. Thank you very much.